Hi there everyone and welcome back to Hits 21 where me, Rob, me, Andy and me, Livy all look back at every single UK number one of the 21st century from January 2000 right through to the present day. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us over on Twitter. We are at Hits21UK. That is at Hits21UK. And you can email us too. Just send it on over to Hits21podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us again. We are currently looking back at the year 2005. And this week, we are going to be covering the period between the 2nd of October and the 12th of November. Almost time for our Christmas episode. Um, before we look back at last week's episode, there is something that has been on my mind. It's a little question for the listeners, slightly informal, but I've always wondered how people listen to us. Not necessarily whether they listen to us on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anything like that, but whether they listen to us like on headphones or out loud on their phone speaker while they're doing chores and things like that, or if they're driving in the car or whatever. So... When we put the episode out on Sunday, um, just respond and let us know if you want to. I've always been curious because I listen to podcasts out loud on my phone speaker while I'm doing the dishes or brushing my teeth or, you know, whenever there's a moment where I have to be alone with my own thoughts. Um, So I'm curious to see if other people do the same thing. Um, Looking back at last week, our poll winner, it's Dare. I got to do it again. Um, Gorillas, so well done. Uh, Well done to the animated band. Um, So, on to this week's episode, and as always, we are going to give you some news headlines from around the time that the songs we're looking at in this week's episode were at number one in the UK. Actor and comedian Ronnie Barker dies of heart failure in Oxfordshire, aged 76. Barker had earlier declined to have heart valve replacement surgery. He was given a private humanist funeral and his final resting place is in Banbury, near to his hometown of Bedford. The Conservative Party begins voting on a new leader following their defeat at the 2005 general election. After the process was completed, Michael Howard was succeeded by a gentleman named David Cameron, the MP for Whitney in Oxfordshire. I'm sure we'll never hear about him in the news again. (laughs) No, surely not. And American civil rights activist Rosa Parks, who became famous for her pivotal role in Montgomery Bus Boycott, dies aged 92. She became the first woman to lie in honour in the United States Capitol Rotunda. The films to hit the top of the UK box office during this period were as follows. Serenity for one week, Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Weir Rabbit for three weeks, and Nanny McPhee for one week. In UK TV, Lazy Town airs its first episodes on British TV. BBC One airs the 500th episode of Casualty, and Doctor Who wins big at the National Television Awards, with Christopher Eccleston and Billy Piper winning the big awards on the night. Yay. And EastEnders becomes the first British drama to feature a two-minute silence on November 11th for Armistice Day. The episode in question saw Shane Ritchie's character visit the spot where his grandfather was killed in Normandy and later won the British Soap Award for Best Episode. Andy, how are the UK album charts looking right now? 
Yeah, I uh, got plenty of little treats for you this week. So where we last left off, Katie Melua was at the top with Piece by Piece, uh, which went four times platinum. But as this period begins, that's soon toppled at the top by the second album by Franz Ferdinand, titled You Could Have It So Much Better, uh, which is quite aptly titled because it's not as good as the first album, which really holds up, actually, the first album. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I quite liked You Could Have It So Much Better back in the day. But yeah, um, that goes single platinum and is at number one for one week in October before it's toppled by The Sugar Babes with their latest release, Taller in More Ways. That went double platinum and was number one for one week. You're noticing a theme here of one week. And then at the top, it's The Prodigy with their singles collection called Their Law, uh, which went number one for one week, again, and went triple platinum. And then we have Robbie Williams with an album title I just... (laughs) Adore, which is Intensive Care. That's the most Robbie album title ever. (laughs) (laughs) Until we get to Robbie Williams Swings Both Ways. Uh, But anyway, um, that went number one for one week, you guessed it, and went five times platinum for some unknown reason. Uh, And then finally, as this period ends, it's another number one album for our favourites, Westlife, with their latest Face to Face, which went number one for how long? One week and went four times platinum, baffling many. Okay. Uh, Lizzie, how are things in America? Well, I have nothing to report in terms of singles, as Gold Digger continues its 10-week run at number one. Wow. So I'll move straight on to albums. So first up, we have Disturbed with 10,000 Fists. (laughs) Yeah, it got to number one for one week, and eventually went double platinum in the US, but only got to number 59 in the UK albums chart. Next up, we have All Jacked Up by Gretchen Wilson. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) I thought that was just me then. (laughs) It spent one week at number one and eventually went platinum in the US, but it failed to chart in the UK, as you might have guessed. After that, Nickelback make their big return with all the right reasons. Despite spending only a week at number one, it was eventually certified diamond in the US, with almost wow. 8 million copies sold to date. Blimey. Here in the UK, it's certified three times platinum with just under a million copies sold. It originally peaked at number 13 in October 2005, but after the success of the single Rockstar, it spent two weeks at number two in February 2008. Will that get to number one? You'll have to wait uh, about... Uh, 20 episodes or so. Oh, I can't we'll wait that know. long. That's really interesting that the single was so successful so long after the album. Next up, we have Unplugged by Alicia Keys, a live album recorded on the MTV show Unplugged in July 2005. It was certified platinum in the US, but over here it only got as high as number 52 around the same time. Two more to go, we're nearly there. Ashley Simpson was next to claim the soft spot with I Am Me. despite being certified platinum in the US it didn't quite manage to jig its way to success in the UK only getting as high as number 50 and finally this week Destiny's Child took the top spot with their first greatest hits album hashtag one apostrophe s more commonly known as number ones Uh (laughs) that completely got me then (laughs) it spent one week at number one in the US and was eventually certified platinum Back in the UK, it was certified double platinum with around 600,000 sales, 
but it only managed to get as high as number six around this time. Oh, lots of very popular yeah. albums in its way. Well, thank you both very much, and we are going to come back over to the UK to press on with the songs we're covering this week. And the first of the three is this. Okay, this is Push the Button by Sugar Babes. Released as the lead single from the group's fourth studio album, which we just heard about, titled Taller in More Ways, Push the Button is Sugar Babes' 13th single overall to be released in the UK and their fourth to reach number one. Uh, this is not the last time that we'll be discussing Sugar Babes on this podcast either. Push the Button went straight in at number one as a brand new entry knocking Pussycat Dolls off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for three weeks. In its first week atop the charts, it sold 78,000 copies, beating competition from Song for Lovers by Liberty X, which got to number five. In week two, it sold 64,000 copies, beating competition from Tripping by Robbie Williams, which got to number two. And in week three, it sold 47,000 copies, beating competition from All Because of You by U2, which got to number four, and Baby Goodbye by Friday Hill, which got to number five. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Push the Button dropped one place to number two. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 23 weeks. The song is currently officially certified platinum in the UK as of 2023. So, Andy, kick us off with Sugar Babes. Oh, can I? Thank you. I will push the big start button on Sugar Babes. Uh, <laughs> I, I sense I'm going to be slightly less enthusiastic um, than you both on this, and that's kind of generally been the theme with me with Sugar Babes, but not so much as I used to be. I think, you know, that's something that's perhaps not clear to our listeners is that I used to be really quite down on the Sugar Babes. I used to be allowed through and through and uh, scorned the sugar babes quite frankly um, I just didn't really see the big deal and then both three freak like me and um, and round round and which is the other one that we've covered hole in the head. head hole in the head of course yeah all three of them I've really quite liked um, I've really been kind of turned around on them so I was I really went into this with an open mind and I do like it 
it gets a big thumbs up, but I have the same kind of problem with it that I've always had really, which is that there just seems to be a little something that would really push it over the edge that just isn't there. It's just a little bit minimal for me. But what is there I really, really like. I really love that driving rhythm and those little um, vocal things in the background there. I just think it's got a really great sense of energy to it. It's very catchy, isn't it? Um, and I think actually the bridges are the best part of the song with the I've been waiting patiently with that guitar twanging the tune in the background. It definitely does take you away with it. Um, and I did really enjoy this, but I don't know whether it's something in the production, maybe just to kind of lift it over the edge. Um, I don't know whether it maybe just needs to divert from the formula a little bit more as it goes, but Having said that, I do kind of think that the formula that it sticks to is kind of the success of the song, that it does what it wants to do very simply, very straightforwardly and very effectively. It's just a good pop song. Um, so I find it quite hard to squeeze any kind of juice out of it in terms of analysis because of that. But it does mean it's just a very, very solid pop song. Um, yeah. I like this. You can tell I don't have a huge amount to say about it just because, like I say, I think it's very, very straightforward, just very catchy, just a nice, energetic pop song. I think it could have been a little bit more than that, and I, once again, kind of have the same problem with the girls' voices, that I just think they're a little bit thin, that they could kind of have a bit more power, a bit more fun, a bit more character in their voices, but I'm kind of picking at relatively minor points, to be honest, um, and yeah, I did like this. But I'm kind of interested to see what you two think more than my own thoughts, to be honest, because I maybe wonder if there's something I'm not quite getting about this. Um, as it stands, though, yeah, definitely, definitely gets a thumbs up from me. But I just kind of wish it had that little X factor about it that really elevated it. I know I might be biased a little bit just because I think, as I mentioned in the last episode, I was just starting high school uh, this time. Um, and I'll always have fond memories of songs released around this time, but I think that Dare last week kicks off a little golden period for number one singles in the UK that I would mm. argue lasts until about midway through 2008. And so we're right in the beginning stages of it here. Um, and I think that last week and this week combined are in contention for like being the strongest little run of number one singles that we ever get in the UK in the 2000s because we go from Dare into Don't You Which I Really Loved then this and then the next song so that's like four consecutive songs that I have a really strong relationship with even after all this time four songs that all sound new and exciting and you know uh, at, le at least in terms of pop music you know quite progressive with their sound you know forward thinking in numerous ways despite coming from all sorts of different backgrounds and genres and also class status and new acts and established acts there's a lot going on i think in this little period of 2005 um with regards to push the button there were just certain songs and certain moments where like as soon as they strike you can see the next little period of pop like kind of roll out in front of you a little bit you know and the few opening strands of this seem to be quite accurate with predicting where pop kind of sits for the next little bit of time, um, a move towards a kind of bit-crushed dance pop with little R&B uh, influences. I feel like we're going to be coming back to that quite a lot over the next sort of, uh, like you were saying before, Lizzie, ironically enough, about uh, the next sort of 20 episodes. Um, and yet, with Push the Button, despite it resembling a few things that come afterwards, it still feels a moment entirely of itself in isolation, looking back 
Um, there's no song I can necessarily point to and say, yes, that's a close relative of Push the Button. As much as it feels like the, the general demeanour and the construction of the song is relatively similar to things that come afterwards, I do think that this has an atmosphere that's fairly unique to British pop around this time. And overall, it, you know, it feels like it takes the kind of modern urbanite sexual liberation of Call On Me and just kind of refines it, restrains it, transposes it into like a sultry girl group setting. Because Sugar Babes have always had that kind of, you know, talk to the hand kind of demeanor about their music. Um, and it's interpreted through this too, because ultimately this is a song about sugar babes having to make the first move, but they still sound like they are in control of whatever situation that is being described. It's still instructing them. It's still them, sorry, instructing the other person to push the button. You know, you do the verb, you do the action. Um, I think like you, Andy, um, as much as I am um, actually, just to confess, I'm going to vault this, I think one place where this falls slightly short of a perfect mark is just towards the end. Like you were saying, Andy, about it maybe lacking that last little ingredient just to tip it over the edge. And I do think at the end, it doesn't quite lift itself to its full potential. The third verse is just the usual bridge, but with no melody. It's just that voicemail thing, which was really popular at the time, but hasn't aged particularly well as technology has moved on and the idea of a voicemail is just a faff. You know, you could just send it in a text message instead. Um, and I also think the final chorus could punch a bit harder than it does, but I'm still perfectly fine with hearing the same chorus again because it is wonderful. You know, the, the carefully grouped, uh, sorry, the carefully mixed group vocals, the way the electronics go all kind of rigid but louder and they seem to start an entirely separate section or their own that feels like a new track has started. Um, I feel like 90% of this is amazing and the other 10% is just kind of okay. Um, and that it's the verse really that's the okay bit. I don't think they... Does anybody else feel like the lyrics in that third verse feel like they're another rewrite away from getting to the heart of it? Because it's just a bit... I've been dropping so many hints and you're still not getting it. Now you've heard everything I have to say, where are we going to go from here? It just doesn't, it feels like on the day they came in and they were like, okay, we don't have a third verse, but we're just going to get one of you to say this. And it just feels like it was the first thing they came up with. Um, yeah. But that's, that's my only real yeah. mark against it. I do think that where certain songs like Hole in the Head, for example, which was quite, you know, upbeat and active in a uh, in a way that I feel is slightly different to push the button. I felt like their voices were slightly overshadowed. Um, this, I, I'm not really getting it this time. I do think that they're slightly quieter, more kind of polite uh, vocals compared to other girl groups of the time. It feels like they work together as a unit because nobody particularly stands out. Um, although I, uh, just before I hand over to Lizzie, I just want to mention the, um, the lyric... Um, my sexy ass has got him in the new dimension. I feel like that's a very 2005 lyric. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you could put that in a song any earlier than this. It feels like something that's part of an era we're moving into where, for a short period, pop becomes a more interior thing, and we all have things on our iPods that we can 
quietly enjoy without having to involve anybody else. And I think something as super camp as my sexy ass has got him in the new dimension <laughs> uh, is something that's perfectly fine to be enjoyed quietly in your earphones. Uh, and you don't have to tell anybody about it. Um, but Lizzie, uh, what about you? We push the button. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that line because I was going to say about, we had a sort of discussion before about how it feels like that kind of sexual overtness comes into pop a lot more from mm. around this point. Yeah. Particularly, I think pussycat dolls are a big part of that. Um, and as much as this is quite tame, you know, my sexy ass, we're only a couple of years away from things like S&M. And yeah. then you get to the nadir of it with blurred lines. But like it for a time, it did feel like it was kind of more accepted to to do that sort of thing in pop and it's around this time where you could just get that on the radio that's just what pop was um in a way that in previous decades it would have just been persona non grata like you can't do that because it will just get taken off the radio playlists at this point you don't have to rely on radio playlists you've got so many avenues that you can reach audiences through that even if a radio station does deem it, you know, a bit too risque, you don't really need to worry about it if you've got the fan base already there. Mm. Yeah, I like this one. I th- I think you've both pretty much nailed it, that this is a solid pop song um, that is, yes, maybe missing something. There's, o- there's two other Sugar Babe songs that come to mind. One is Freak Like Me, where... At the end, you get the do do na 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 na. So like really ramp up to the next level. There's another one coming up in I think two years where there's a a gorgeous little bit in like is it the middle eight I think anyway towards the end where it kind of takes it from the chorus just to take you to the final chorus and I love that. But again, the two examples of where you've kind of got something going and then you insert just that one little last element to take it over the edge and it's like yeah you've you've got it i feel like like you said rob this is maybe a rewrite away from being something exemplary but instead i think it's just i say just it's a really solid example of the way pop was moving towards at the time where you know, previously they'd been this kind of R&B with somewhat rock elements, whereas now they're straightforward electro-pop, like yeah. a robot from 1984. <laughs> um, and you were talking about the DNA of this song. I actually find that there's a little bit of dare in here, in that mm. the actual backing is kind of simple. Like, the backing of this is just the same three chords over and over again. Like... And it's... And what that does, it kind of gives space for Keisha especially. Her vocals shine on this. I know that Mucha and... What is it? It's Heidi. Heidi, yeah. Yeah, their bits are good on the verses, but they don't have quite as much to do it's purely for Keisha to show off particularly in that pre-chorus bit you know that I've been waiting patient the way that kind of builds it it ascends and it gives her more room to you know play about with it towards the end of that she's got that like I say that brilliant ascending bridge and her almost like breathless delivery of it um 
And yeah, I again, I feel like maybe with just one more piece of the puzzle, this could have been like, you know, top tier of Hits 21. I still think it's vault worthy and spoiler alert, I will put it in the vault because I think it is something that is quite significant in its time as much as much as it doesn't seem like much now because everything afterwards kind of sounded like this this feels like the sort of second wave of the british pop renaissance of like the the 2000s that started in 2002 with the sugar babes and you know xenomania and richard x this feels like the next evolution of that as well as obviously the the next song coming up so um one of the singles from this album their third single was red dress um and the b-side to that was a song we're covering next here we go then our second song this week is this Okay, this is I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor by Arctic Monkeys. Released as the lead single from the band's debut studio album titled Whatever People Say I Am, That's What I'm Not. I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor is Arctic Monkeys' first single to be released overall in the UK and of course their first to reach number one. And it's not the last time that we'll be discussing Arctic Monkeys on this podcast. I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor went straight in at number one as a brand new entry knocking Sugar Babes off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 40,000 copies beating competition from I Wanna Hold You by McFly which got to number three. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor dropped one place to number two. The song initially left the charts in May 2006, but re-entered the charts in 2012 and 2013, meaning that by the time it left the top 100, it had been inside the top 100 for 38 weeks. It is currently officially certified three times platinum, so triple platinum in the UK, as of 2023. Lizzie, Arctic Monkeys, go ahead. Yeah, you know how we were saying about British pop moving into its next phase? <laughs> Here we are, like, don't believe hype. <laughs> just kicks in straight away. Yeah, I, I love this. Um, I love it when a song announces itself the way this one does. Like, this one 
soars out of the park right off the bat. It's like it's fast, it's loud, it's full of energy. It's like if you don't get on board, you quickly get left behind. That is how you announce yourself as a brand new rock band on the charts. That kind of take no prisoners approach. Like the intro to this might be the most exciting thing we've covered on the podcast. Like the the sort of haymaker chug of the guitar to the urgent throb of the drum beat under that amazing ascending guitar, like the like, and that sort of leads you into the first verse. It reminds me a bit of something like New Rose by the Damned, like the unofficial first punk single, which yes. similarly opens with that, like a chugging guitar over an anticipatory drum beat before like kicking in at full pelt. And within 30 seconds, you've either turned off in disgust or you're ready to declare them your new favourite band. And that's just the intro. Like, there's, there's still the rest of the song. And, like, it doesn't get any less exciting from there. Just straight away to hear, um, to hear Alex Turner's voice, like, it is explicitly northern. I think we did have a chat a while back about how accents, like, broad accents become a thing in pop around this time even last week we had um we had dare which is maybe the thickest of northern accents this <laughs> side of arctic monkeys this is um this is the yorkshire to our lancashire but yeah and so it's just that the mixture of his delivery and the lyrics it, i kind of i tried to describe the lyrics the best way i could come up with is like the sound of this is like if Buzzcocks did a song with lyrics by Victoria Wood. <laughs> yes. It's got that kind of sort of tongue-in-cheek social realism about it, where it's not just all like cobble street grimness. There is some genuine like wit, like your name isn't Rio, but I don't care for sand. It's like <laughs> Montagues and Capulets just banging tunes and DJ sets. Like there's, there's genuine humour in there. And they they cram all of that into just under three minutes. And all the while, you feel like the song is just getting faster and faster. It's like the last minute or so of Come On Eileen, but it's stretched out to full song length. Um, yeah, I, I, could, I could talk about this for, for ages because it does feel like a moment in British pop where everything kind of changes. Maybe it doesn't in the long term because I think... The long-term ramifications of this is that you get a lot of copycat bands that similarly do very well but don't make as much of an impression, don't feel as exciting just because it does follow this blueprint. And even the Arctic Monkeys themselves, it feels like... I was a, I was a big fan of them with um, a good friend I had in college and it always felt like um, whenever they would put something new out, we go... It's all right, but I reckon when Alex Turner breaks out on his own, he's going to do something incredible. He's going to be like the next <laughs> Scott Walker, where everything he puts out is better and better than last. And instead, they just kind of settled into a bit of a garage rock slash Josh Hom funk and never quite broke out of it, even though I like some of their more recent like lounge lizard stuff. It feels like... He gets fixated on the sound and then does it over and over again. And 
maybe finds it a lot of hard to break out of. I think um, whatever they say I am, that's what I'm not, is a, an example of them finding that, that sound and the theme and being able to expand on it in multiple different guises. And it's probably the last great album they did, I think. I don't think they ever quite met that standard. And I know they come up again. I may be jumping the gun a bit, but... I just wanted to kind of underline how exciting this was and still is and how much like maybe it didn't deliver on the potential but I appreciate that we always have this moment. Yeah, that was really wonderfully spoken. Um, thank you very much. I definitely you. think you communicated how exciting it was. I would slightly disagree on your comment about this being their best because, although, well, ah, actually, would I disagree? Because this, this, whatever people say I am, might be their best. But my favorite's always been favorite worst nightmare. I just, I do like that album. I just think there's this weird kind of smoky post-punky haze that kind of hangs over favorite worst nightmare that just tips it above but it's hard to be as exciting when you just do the same thing again if, if you know what yeah. i mean so like i totally get it um and it's interesting that you've mentioned the damned and the buzzcocks because i've mentioned the buzzcocks in my notes as well because there is a distinctly kind of late 70s flavor to this I think that this this kind of you know it grabs a moment and just kind of wrestles it in its you know in its fist it's like ooh all, all of a sudden mm. it's like it grabs something and shakes it by the shoulders um it's very hard to know where to start with this but I will confess I have a lot on this so I'll try and get through it as fast as I can um <laughs> this is a bit daunting this one because it stands there yeah. like you were saying Lizzie as this huge turning point for mainstream british rock because I would argue Arctic Monkeys were maybe the first example in Britain of a band getting absolutely massive because of promotion on the internet. I think that's the really important thing for reasons that we all know about now. Plus it also results in the album becoming the fastest selling independent album of all time. I think it is still the fastest selling debut album of all time in the UK. I think it sold over 300,000 yeah. copies in the first week. Um, but I also think that with Arctic Monkeys at this time, we were given something that was billed as the next big thing, and it actually turned out to be true, because um, they could back it up with tunes, at least for a, a period of time. I feel like ever since the 90s, and ever since Oasis, well, ever since Be Here Now, I feel like the UK had been waiting for the next big thing, the next big rock band, the next big kind of festival, uh, the f festival kind of rock band. And I feel like Arctic Monkeys really filled that bill um, because this just feels so important from the word go. Like this is new and exciting. And there were bands obviously like Block Party, The Libertines, Franz Ferdinand, who kind of set everything up for this 2000s garage rock slash indie rock revival thing to go over the top. But Arctic Monkeys were per perfectly positioned and they took advantage of it. I remember being like, you know, 10, 11 years old and just sort of like freezing on the spot because I felt like I was looking in from the outside because Arctic Monkeys were clearly a band for students. I mean, imagine being a student at this time when these guys come along. Like imagine being in mm -hmm. uni in 2005 and this, this gets dropped into your lap in your first year during your first semester. Like you just, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. Because this is written with the intention, I think, of trying to change your life. 
like you were saying, Lizzie, the way that it crashes in and makes a kind of noise that British rock hadn't made for years by this point. Because it's music worth getting excited about because that's what it tries to do. It tries to excite you. All the discordant machinery hammering, which then gives way to these, like, as you were saying, Lizzie, the super fast scales that sound like a rocket's about to take off. And then the voice. Like, I, I just I, at this time in my life, and I think in this time in British pop, I don't think we were quite braced for what an effect Alex Turner's voice would have just because he sang in his own accent. I think people really did buy into the, quote, authenticity of it all, you know, the everyday, and then the lyrical details that feel very vivid and quite nuanced. You know, even down to things like him really leaning into the plosives and, you know, spitting into the mic and really audibly heavily breathing before he sings. Like, the, I remember being, like, a, a kid at the time and sort of... I had never heard anybody on a song go... <gasps> as, as they're going to go back in to sing. And then he just takes full <laughs> advantage of it. And it sounds so cool. Like, you know... And it's not... I don't think any of this is necessarily new in time I think it, it felt new and exciting in, in 2005 because it had been a while since something like this had come along but I think you can trace this back to Buzzcocks and The Undertones and bands like Gang of Four as well where it's you know bunch of folks playing guitars really hard some angular riffs how angry and snotty can we sound but this was a 21st century version of it another document to add to this kind of post Britpop dossier that is now quite long. Another band acknowledging the truths of Blairism, even if we were all too excited to really take notice of it at the time. Because as much as I think this song kind of perfectly captures the moment where you see someone who is so hot that they kind of take your breath away, and you know, I, I think that like as much as that's you know it, it captures that excitement in that moment i think the surrounding kind of mise-en-scene reveals the truth of it because i think this song and the album that it's from and especially the next single we'll discuss they're ultimately about people from sheffield living in a dream world because the people in these songs think that everything is vitally important and very intense when all that's really happening in the cold light of day is a slow downward slide towards a recession. Because the dance floor is supposed to be this place where magic happens, but it's described as dirty, and their dreams are supposed to be romantic, but they're naughty. It's very keen to kind of destroy the images that it paints almost as soon as they're finished, which is something I find to be so intriguing. You know, I think Alex Turner had a, a deserved reputation for being a bit of a, a clever clogs with one-liners, but I actually think his true gift was that he was an excellent documentarian around this time. You know, I think that as much as I really love this, I think that their true masterpieces are stuff like Fake Tales of San Francisco, From the Ritz to the Rubble, A Certain Romance, uh, Fluorescent Adolescent, Balaclava. You know, and it's a shame that we won't get to discuss any of them because... I think that as much as this is a worthy, worthy runner-up to them, I think that though those are the, the genuinely, like, special, must-preserve-them sort of, you know, perfect 10 out of 10, put them behind a glass box in a museum kind of thing. Um, but this, it's just... <laughs> I love how he's so matter-of-fact about his subject matter because it means that all the romance and glamour gets sucked out of them. I think that even with songs like this... 
this the, about you know the the first time you experience something when it's all a rush. I do think that even with this, like the rest of Arctic Monkey's really early material, there is a sense of futility to them. That all the drinking and music and taxis and girls and what have you, it all ends in your own rundown, neglected estate in Sheffield. It's easy to forget because we're in the 21st century, but like these kids were born during the Thatcher years, and these are the children of the abandoned generation in the North. And even though this is such a rush of excitement, the lasting taste is just kind of soggy pavements, social decay, a grim cab journey home. And it's, I, I find all of, all of these contradictions so, so interesting, along with the music as well, which really does feel like, I mean, when he says, don't believe the hype, and then they play in the music video, the song just completely raw, you know, no frills, no excess, just four lads, one camera, some lights. I think all of it really comes together in this great image because ultimately that was what Arctic Monkeys really convinced people of in the early days. They had a very convincing image and this was part of it. It was perfect synergy like pop is supposed to have. Um, just as a side point, um, I think that like the absolute best bands of this period, the, the so-called landfill indie era, as it's now called, were the ones who didn't necessarily try try to write from within the circle, like, oh, look how cool we are. They were the ones who stood slightly outside the circle and observed just as much as they could and just as much as they could take in. And I think Arctic Monkeys are part of the, the outer circle, the people observing. Have you got any other examples of that? Like, like, um, like that. Art Brute and Block Party and Late of the Pier. And I would say at, at, at his best, maybe not over the course of an album, but in terms of singles, I think Jamie T was always kind of more, you know, despondent and less celebratory of this scene. But I do think that Art Brute especially was sort okay. of like perfect... That they set themselves up as a perfect satire, I think, of that kind of, you know, part of that scene. Um, and I think Arctic Monkey's early material kind of sits in that realm too. Um, and I think, yeah. just to sort of wrap up with Dance Floor, I think that this is something that has both instant and enduring appeal. It's a fairly accurate representation of where we were, but I think it's also a bit of a harbinger for where we were heading you know, Arctic Monkeys don't necessarily last long as a singles chart heavyweight, but they've only just headlined Glastonbury as of 2023, so they weren't a flash in the pan by any means. I do think that this is the... Even when I was saying the name of the song at the beginning and the name of the band, it just felt a bit like, whoa, this is like, you know, the beginning of mm. a thing on the podcast. It's like, you know, loads of history is kind of rolled out in front of me right now. Um and I think you can tell from this that they had serious legs. I think this really did freeze the nation on the spot. And I cannot, like I was saying before, I cannot imagine how exciting it must have been to have been a Northern student when this lot were really popping off at the beginning. All the, cause I remember like the songs off the album, the album was such a big deal and people wanted to hear so much of it that songs that weren't even released as singles got regular airplay on Radio 1. I remember Fake Tales of San Francisco, The View from the Afternoon, yeah. and Mardi Bum mm -hmm. all being played on the radio regularly because people were ringing in to hear them. And none of them were ever released as proper singles. I remember Vernon Kay really uh, playing Mardi Bum twice in a show because people kept ringing in for it. And yeah, there was just something that 
there's something in this that I don't think we'd heard before, or at least not for a long time in the UK. And I think it's also sort of proof as well that like we're in an era of the charts where an independent band who mostly plug themselves online can sort of get to number one at the moment and become a huge deal just on the basis of like 40,000 copies and one week at number one. It just kept them in the spotlight just for long enough so that they could amass a huge following and stay around forever and get mm. slower and less energetic and more annoying as the years went by. <laughs> and then sort of having a little bit of a revival, deciding to go for psychedelic lounge pop stuff and then playing their songs at 75% speed at their first Glastonbury set for 16 years. Um but we'll probably talk about that more next time. Andy, how do you feel about this? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't really know how I can possibly follow the both of you there because you really have done a full and worthy tribute there. Um, and I have really very, very little else to add except to sort of echo the points that I kind of feel most strongly there. I think it is just so fresh in the context of the sh- of our show for starters, I think, like, obviously in the landscape in general, but particularly what's been number one over the, you know, over the last five years or so in in rock music, we've had Oasis, which have been largely bland, apart from the importance of being idle. We've had one Manic Street Preachers song, which is virtually forgotten. Uh, we've really not had much else in terms of rock music, to be honest. And, oh, we've had U2 as well, which I completely forgot about. <laughs> um and it just in that landscape, this is just so, so different. Like, it, it's, it's such a different avenue of rock music that you can really barely put them into the same category. And that, I kind of think, is one of Arctic Monkey's greatest tricks, is that they they kind of are a buffet table rather than a meal. You, they, they really straddle quite a lot of different things, particularly as they've gone on through time and they've turned into a very, very different sound. Um, but even even in these days, you know, they offer very, very different things to different people. And I think that's their originality. You know, that that's... I, I particularly like what you said there, Rob, about how, you know, so many different songs got so many airplay, uh, got so much airplay, because... I do think that off that first album in particular, but the second album as well, they genuinely are albums that everybody has different favourite tracks off. Like, every single song on both of those albums, there are a lot of people that would say, oh, that's absolutely the best song ever. You know, they, they, they really do present so many different options for you. And there are a few that, like, people coalesce around. Like, Mardi Bum is kind of, like, their great classic. They're, like, their great fan favourite um, that gets played at the encores and stuff like that. Um, obviously this and when the sun goes down you know the big breakout hits but um, A Certain Romance has always been my favourite of theirs I'm really glad you mentioned that yeah, one same. and that yeah. de- definitely does that thing that they're so good at of kind of capturing the zeitgeist of kind of well I'll get to this but not just capturing the zeitgeist but setting the zeitgeist as well by kind of starting the song you know with memorable first lines that are full of imagery of the time so that imagery sticks with you like the first line of certain romances they might wear classic Reeboks or um, Knackered Converse or Tracky Bottoms tucked in socks and it's like you just instantly painting a picture of the time yeah. and place this is from and it's it's so much easier said than done like to, to just go straight in with senses of time and place in a song and senses of setting and senses of what you're trying to capture. It's such a hard thing to do and they make it look so easy. They make it 
look like it's so easy to just go this is us and this is where we are and this is where we're from and it's the greatest compliment I can pay to the first two albums in particular is that they really are deceptively simple. There's so much going on in those albums. And this song in particular, completely agree with what Lizzie said about um, that rising guitar that just keeps building and building and building before dropping into that boppy little rhythm. That is just great. The guitar work on this is just absolutely great. The regional accents certainly help. We all love a regional accent, particularly the live launch cover of Love Machine, I think is just oh, the greatest yes. live launch. The greatest thing that ever happened on Live Lounge. Um, absolutely magnificent. They also did a really great cover of You Know I'm No Good by Amy Winehouse, um, which is definitely worth seeking out. But yeah, they just don't sound like anyone else at this time. And it's good to have the context of this show to remind us of that because there will soon be plenty of people trying to sound like them, who never <laughs> really succeed. Um, and it's good to acknowledge that they are kind of out of the gate in, like I say, actually setting the zeitgeist. Like, I do sort of remember what this was like at the time, and they were the coolest thing in the world. And as much it is, as it is nice to have seen it happen to another generation as well, who still think they're the coolest thing in the world, I don't really like everything from AM onwards, to be honest. I just think it's not for me, and I'm kind of glad that it's okay to say that, because there was certainly a time in the years after AM came out that it really felt like a taboo thing to say, of like, I don't really like AM, I don't think it's particularly fun. <laughs> it's not, it's crap. No, I've tried, I've tried so many times in so many different ways. I've tried coming at it as a rock album, I've tried coming at it as Arctic Monkeys trying to do like the Motown sound, I've, tried, I've come at it as a blues album. I've come at it as like them trying their first forays into like psychedelic pop and that. It just does not yeah. work for me. I've tried it so many times. It's so flat, so flat, so flat. I really it's... just cannot stand it. But carry on, sorry. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that psych psychedelia is the angle that I was really trying to come at it from because that album really sounds like it was made on a lot of drugs. And so that was kind of the the vibe I was trying to get into with that album, but just didn't work for me. But yeah, um, but this stuff is just great. I love, love, love socially conscious um, and, like I say, music that captures time and place. I just love that sort of thing. Um, and I, I do think that with Alex Turner as well, that he was always trying to do this, to be honest. He was always trying to kind of set the template and create something new. Um, I don't think it was kind of like, oh, we've accidentally become the biggest thing in British music. I do think they were always trying to make a bit of a mission statement. Like, that album title is a right old mission statement, right there. Um, and I definitely think that was always something they were trying to do. That's kind of sadly gone to his head a little bit in um, in more recent years. He, he's, he's quite a pretentious chap these days, to be honest. Um, he's quite proud of what he's achieved, I'll just say that. But, um, yeah... These were the glory days, and I look back on this very fondly. Whenever this comes on, it's like, oh, how exciting was the start of that indie wave. Of course, it got much less exciting as time went on, but um, the, the start of this was just the most exciting time, and um, I can't say anything but great stuff about this song. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. That rock and roll, eh? That rock and roll thing, eh? It just doesn't go away. <laughs> <laughs> it might hibernate from time to time, sink back into the swamp. It's not even, it's, it's not even the words he says. It, like, he, he pauses and like shakes his head. Like, <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> I mean, that that is kind of unavoidable, really, because that, I mean, that happens to the best of them. It happened to John Lennon. You know, it's like, it's yeah. it, when you really do 
become a cultural icon in that way and like redefine an era of music in that way. Of course, it's going to go to your head a little bit. Just maybe be aware of what you're saying in the public eye. <laughs> yeah, I do think, I mean, we'll probably talk about this more, but I do think I, as someone who generally likes everything up to and including um, Suck It and See, I do think that somewhere between the beginning of them recording Suck It and See and the end of them recording AM, I do think that they started to think that their own fart smelled amazing mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. that time yeah. and everything they've done since, even the stuff I quite like, just has this, like you were saying, Andy, this just super serious, pretentious air to it where it's like, well, everything that we touch is just golden. And we can turn up to Glastonbury and play everything in the the slowest possible pace that we could possibly play it and get away with it. And we can just do that because we're untouchable with the Arctic Monkeys. And it just it feels like at this point in their career, they have a point to prove. And they sound so urgent and energetic because of it. I, I don't know if I disagree with that. I think, I like I said it before, I think Turner especially just gets fixated on a particular idea or a particular vibe or a particular sound. And as the years have gone on, his ability to stretch outside of that has diminished because yeah. his worldview is one of Los Angeles and mm. money and, you know, sunlit hotels and beautiful women. It's not like this, what he's got here, which is, you know, northern working class, like post-industrial grime and yeah. the, the rot that comes with it. Couldn't, like, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, the se- the sec- the second that they got massive, like it, it it became a contradiction of terms that like you cannot keep your finger on the pulse that much and relate to the common man or, or you know young person or student that much. You just you just can't. It's like Sex Pistols. Like the second that that album went massive, that was it for them. Like it was just never going to be the same again. And that's the well, risk they you knew run, it. really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah of course they, they knew did. it. Yeah, that they was why they blew it. up. Yeah. 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 yeah, But like, there's there's interesting ways to speak from those perspectives. Like I say, the sort mm. of you know being in that fame bubble. Like there are stories to tell from that point. But I just think like he hasn't changed himself. It's just the world around him has and. He doesn't know how to talk about it in a compelling way. I definitely think he's always gone, you know, kind of blown a little bit hot and cold, though. I definitely think that he's always had eras of time that are a little bit less inspired than others. Like, I I do think Humbug is a little bit of an aberration in those first four albums. And I I think, you know, the, the last three albums are of kind of varying quality. So I don't know if it's just like he occasionally just goes through these writer's block periods where it's not as fresh as it should be so I, I i do actually think you know it's entirely possible that they might have a reawakening and come up with something really really interesting in the future um i hope so yeah. hmm. uh, oh yes we have another song to do this week and it is <laughs> this Still am waiting here in the side. 
You raise me up so I can't stand on mountains. You raise me up to walk on stormy seas. I am strong when I am on your shoulders. You raise me to more than I can be. Okay, this is You Raise Me Up by Westlife. Released as the lead single from the group's sixth studio album titled Face to Face, we heard about it before, You Raise Me Up is Westlife's 18th single overall to be released in the UK and their 13th single to reach number one. This is not the last time we'll be discussing Westlife on this podcast. You Raise Me Up is a cover of the song originally recorded by Secret Garden and Brian Kennedy, which did not reach the UK chart. You Raise Me Up went straight in at number one as a brand new entry knocking Arctic Monkeys off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for two weeks. In its first week atop the charts, it sold 97,000 copies, beating competition from King of the Mountain by Kate Bush, which got to number four. Wake Up by Hilary Duff, which got to number seven. And Just Want You To Know by Backstreet Boys, which got to number eight. And in week two, it sold 58,000 copies, beating competition from Can I Have It Like That? You Got It Like That by Pharrell and Gwen Stefani, which got to number three. Don't Love You No More by Craig David, which got to number four. And Number One by Goldfrapp, which didn't get to number one, it got to number nine. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, You Raise Me Up dropped one place to number two. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 20 weeks. The song is currently officially certified platinum in the UK as of 2023. Andy, Westlife, You Raise Me Up. Only one more time, only one more Westlife song to go, but we have to discuss this one first. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't have to. You're making No, we don't, me. actually. Yeah, yeah, we make you're, the rules, but it's best if we do. <laughs> you're choosing to put me through this, Rob, but I rebel. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to be very, very brief on this, because what is there to say about Westlife that hasn't already been said? And that's not just because they've been very prolific on the charts, and we've had to discuss them about nine million times. It's also because they're deeply boring um, as artists and deeply boring musically, and frankly, they're quite boring as people. Um, this one is no exception. It follows that exact same formula of balladry with a light piano backing that turns into a string backing that then turns into the musical equivalent of firework rain as they stand up off the stools, and it sells like, sells like hotcakes, but no one ever remembers it. It's uh, it's the exact same formula over and over again, and I continue to be annoyed by the 2005 British public's tastes that they are buying into this stuff, because they are so, so, so out of date by now. I mean, what kind of... 
statement do you have to make other than this came after I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor? The very next week after that was number one, you get this at number one. Come on, boys, it's time to leave the stage. And that's really all I have to say about this, other than that this is really, really boring. And to kind of emphasise quite how boring it is, and also just so I could, you know, fill my slot with a little bit more talking, I listed some things I could think of that are more interesting than Westlife and more interesting than this song, um, which Ooh, are boring, okay. but they are yeah. more interesting than this. So I've got Dishcloths, um, yep. Dado Rails, um, Cliff, Cliff Richard, mm-hmm. um, the, the film Red, uh, Rice, <laughs> S- Scottish Politics, um, Perrier Water, Cranes, the vehicles, not the birds, Cranes, the birds, not the vehicles, um, <laughs> Cornflower, Pop Idol the Game, Snooker, and Tarmac. So those are some things that I find more interesting than Westlife. That's mm. the end of my segment. <laughs> I, do, I do think that, well, yes, I, I actually, thank you for the list, but I do think that the um, the history of the creation of Tarmac could be quite an interesting topic, actually. Uh, I'm going to get into that just on purpose. <laughs> just, you, I, do you, only, you do you, Rob. You do you. If only despite... Um, Westlife's success by the, by the time we come to the Rose at the end of 2006 again perfectly positioned just before Christmas to make that penultimate episode just before Christmas uh, hell for us um, but instead I'll try and give some tarmac facts when we come to the Rose if you want you'd really yeah. find not to but yeah, yeah, yeah that would be yeah it's your choice. <laughs> yeah, thank you for your list. Um, Lizzie, how do we feel about You Raise Me Up? Well, I think Favourite Worst Nightmare might actually be my favourite Arctic Monkeys album now I come to think about it. Because there were some songs on it I didn't realise were actually on there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, scratch what I said about um, the first album being the best. I don't actually think that. Um, and when we do come to that, it's gonna there's like a specifically quite painful born to runner up on there. Oh hang on, we're not talking about the Arctic Monkeys anymore, sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, you can go for it. Yeah. No one no one noticed. <laughs> just, should we just talk about them for another half an hour? Like, we we probably could, you know. We'd have to go way off script. But unfortunately I do have to ask for your opinion about Westlife and you raise me up. <laughs> Some say roads, they're made of tarmac. <laughs> um, like, let's start with the positives on this. Like, it's better than Mandy, which was a creatively bankrupt cash grab by Simon Cowell. And it's better than Unbreakable, which we only discussed about six months ago. And I couldn't even hum if you asked me to. <laughs> like, that's not to say this is good, but it's one of the more memorable Westlife hits. Yeah, is it though? <laughs> It is. Everybody knows this song. Yeah, but they don't know At this. The they chorus. know the Josh Groban version, I think. I, I disagree. I disagree. Oh, In I the UK, know. I think specifically this version, because I feel like this has been specifically made for that thing they'd always do on The X Factor, where you'd have a contestant at the judge's house, <laughs> and they'd do that awful thing where it's like, as you know, there's always going to be disappointments in this process. And we do have to send people home. Unfortunately, on this occasion, you're going to have to come back because I'm putting you through to the live shows. <laughs> you raise me up! <laughs> <laughs> and they get up off the seat and they hug Louis Walsh or whoever it is. 
I have to, I really have to give a shout out at this point. I shared this with you two, and I might put it on uh, our social media that I got bored um, a while back. Presumably, I finished reading the article about Tarmac, um, and hmm. I um, made two playlists. One of them called "Through to Judges' Houses," and one of them called "Reality <laughs> TV Rejection," which was like all you the did. songs I could remember that were used for that purpose. <laughs> I'll definitely have to make sure you raise me up is on the "Through to Judges' Houses" one. <laughs> And they even have the, the shot of the person who didn't quite get through and they go, I am strong. <laughs> and they're just a single tear rolls down their cheek. But that's why people know this song, because it is a mainstay of that. It's <laughs> just like, if, if you were a fan of the X, well, not a fan, if you were a, a victim of the X Factor back in the day, <laughs> then you know this through and through. You've seen it a million times. But that's all there really is to this. It is just montage fodder I even tried to read a bit more of that Westlife book to see if they had any interesting stories about it I'm so sorry Lizzie I know I tried but it's just the usual spiel like oh we weren't sure about it at first but then we heard the song and we knew it was going to be a hit (laughs) like there's no challenge to their success by this point there's no hard battles to fight there's no unforgiving gigs to a room full of long faces in the middle of nowhere and like having to pull your amps back onto a lorry and you've got to go down some steps as well just to add insult to injury (laughs) this song is is like it's like an open goal and they're playing on an empty pitch there's just nothing to it and yeah of course it was going to be a hit but fucking it feels like after we've just been discussing British pop like visibly moving forward this feels like 10 steps back I know it's, it's, it's not good and yeah I'm looking forward to being rid of this lot I really we're can't so nearly there I'm going to be so proud of us when we're done with them I really am mm-hmm. if, in fact I've, I maybe feel like that's harsh because I don't think it's them Westlife who are making the choices it's who I just mentioned Louis Walsh and Simon Cowell and all the the people in the back who just play it safe and go for the lowest common denominator every time and they win because they know what people want and it's this shit <laughs> can't trust people jeremy etc etc yeah with with this um i don't like this i find it to be just you um, love it oh <laughs> uh, well <laughs> yeah, it's a proper judge's house thing i didn't just like that performance i loved it I loved you it. raised yeah. me <laughs> Yeah, Westlife. They just do their thing on this. It's a song that kind of suits them better than Mandy, I guess. Like, it's still dull, but it's not quite as dull as Dishwater. I I just think that the Brian Kennedy recording of this um, is just... It's so much better than this version in so many ways. I just feel like... I'm not a massive fan of You Raise Me Up, but the Brian Kennedy version, like, you can feel the humanity in it, and you can feel the humanity in his voice. I feel like singing it as a solo artist feels like it takes on more meaning than singing it as a group, because I feel like You Raise Me Up is about one person singing to another. It was a similar problem to Against All Odds, where it was a group of people singing about a, a song from the perspective of one person and they've done nothing to change the lyrics or adjust the atmosphere or 
anything like that. They just played it totally straight. Um, but Westlife barely changed anything about this, so there's nothing necessarily going wrong here. It's just that, again, it's just ugh, it's just so production line. Um, even the slightly unconventional structure that this has doesn't really elevate it much you know I, I i'm not i'm not going to pie hole this because i don't it doesn't boil my blood I, I i i agree with you lizzie that i do think this is one of the more memorable westlife songs but that could just be that i remember it i don't know if it's necessarily a thing in the public conscious but i I do feel like this is one of, like, you know, if, if people were asked to name 10 Westlife songs, they would probably name this at some point yeah. in that list. I, th I think Flying Without Wings are probably number one, or Uptown Girl. Yeah. But I do think this would be in the top five, top ten sort of territory. Um, but, yeah, I'm glad that it's almost over because, like, it, it just, you know, full disclosure, I, in between last episode and this episode... I've been in Belfast, and now Westlife are not from Northern Ireland, but, you know, I'm closer to Dublin in Belfast than I am any other city in England. So I thought, well, I'll listen to it in Belfast. Maybe something will hit me. You know, there's that long <laughs> section in the middle with the, um, the sort of like, you know, where it goes all Irish folk. Oh, the Titanic bit, yeah. Yeah, and I thought maybe something would hit me, and no. Like, I mean, Belfast <laughs> is an amazing city, and there were lots of things I felt while I was there, but increased affection towards You Raise Me Up was not one of the things that I felt, really. Um, that middle section is quite nice-ish, I, I suppose, but again, it just it's not anything Westlife are doing in that middle bit. It's not them making it. Like They're just waiting to come back in. Someone else is making that, that nice little... Do do do, where it kind of goes up as it goes up a key, and then they do a nice little instrumental thing, and you're like, oh, that's like a wow, a Westlife song with like a a, a key change that was signalled, and then they did it, you know. But then at the end of the song, they pause and they go up again, and you're just like, oh, well, you didn't prepare me for that one, so no, lads, mark down again, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I think this is like if I was gonna give this a grade, it's kind of like a c minus d plus uh, no d plus because c minus implies a pass but yeah it just mm, yeah i don't hate this i just find it like it's a nice song done in the most committee organized way possible which is just westlife to a t which i think deserves derision for that reason <laughs> true very true um i totally understand why um i just I, yeah i only really save the pie hole for songs that really kind of it does take a lot to piss me off with pop, and this gets close, but not quite enough to have it be slammed into the into the pie hole. Um, Before yeah. we finish, can I just, you know, while we're ragging on this song and we're yeah. clearly floundering for things to say about Westlife, can we just have a bit of fun? Can I send Lizzie through to live shows? <laughs> <laughs> Lizzie, Go ahead. <laughs> I didn't like it. I'm sorry. I loved it. You're through to live shows. Oh, I can't believe it. I've got to call my mum. Hi, mum. <laughs> I got through. Oh, my God. <laughs> you remind me of a young Lenny Henry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, well, that is it. 
for this week's episode. Before we go, um, I'm just going to check with Andy. Are there any songs going into the vault or the pie hole for you this week? Um, I'm thinking about the pie hole for Push the Button, but... No, no. Push the button's not going in. Um, bet you look good the in the pie dance. hole. Not pie hole, sorry. The vault. The vault. Um, <laughs> Excuse you. I nearly put push the button in the vault. Certainly didn't consider putting in the pie hole. Um, I'm definitely putting Arctic Monkeys in the vault. Um, absolutely slamming that in there. And I am absolutely slamming Westlife into the pie hole. This was utter shit. <laughs> um, and Lizzie, how about you? Yeah, I'm pushing the button to put push the button <laughs> into the vault. Nice. Um, I bet that you look good on the dance floor is dancing to electro pop in the vault like a robot from 1984. <laughs> you raise me up is sinking into the pie hole. Push the button is going into the vault for me. Um, I bet you look good on the dance floor is also going into the vault for me. And you raise me up is just kind of sitting on the edge of the pie hole. It may fall in at some point. It may not. I'm going to leave its destiny up to itself. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, on this occasion, we're going to have to send you home. I'm sorry. (laughs) You're not going through to the pie hole. We're sending you home to pack loads of bags because you're going through to judges' houses. (laughs) (laughs) When we come back, we will be continuing our journey through 2005. Just one more episode to go now for the big Christmas episode. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye-bye. Come make my dreams only hard as it seems Loving me is as easy as pie I'm just a love machine Feeding my fantasy Give me a kiss, all three And I'm fine, I need a squeeze a day Instead of the negligee